the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. I didn't think that charismatics were very intellectual. I didn't think they were really rooted in the word. This kind of put me on my heels. He said, where's that in the Bible? I thought, well, that's a good question. I don't think I have a good answer for you. In a culture as politically polarized and aggressively tribalized as ours, how do people change their minds? I'm Georgie Borman, a mother, author, and cultural commentator. I want to know what we can learn from people who've been on both sides of contentious issues, whether they end up on the right or the left. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to the 180 cast. During Edwards' meetings in 18th century New England, people would fall down in the midst of his preaching, shrieking, is that the Spirit of God? We can only know by asking the question, are they different when they get up off the floor? Hi, welcome back to the 180 cast. I'm your host, Georgie Borman. This is the podcast that gets inside the heads of people who have done the seemingly impossible, which is to say, change their minds. Speaking of changing minds, I may have mentioned this before on the podcast, but I grew up in a non-denominational church. I love that church, um, but no church gets everything 100% right because we are all humans and we are all fallen. One of the things I, I missed out on a little bit was teaching disciples at least, like getting a little bit of discipleship on the doctrinal differences within the faith. Generally, and I think this is like this with most churches probably, is you're taught one way of thinking about something and you kind of think, unless you go explore other aspects, that this is the only way to interpret something. This is really the only thing that legitimate Christians believe in, and so on and so forth. But so I didn't know until I was out of college that there were Christians who didn't believe that um, the certain gifts given by the Holy Spirit to the first disciples, like speaking in tongues, healing, prophecy, that's some people didn't believe that that they were still around and still in effect. And I didn't know that there was a long, exhaustively argued tradition going back to, I think, the Reformation, at least, of cessationism, of believing that the supernatural gifts stopped sometime in the early church, maybe even when the, the, the last of the apostles died. So why do some Christians believe this? Um, what is their justification? And what would convince a cessationist to change his or her mind and believe that these charismatic gifts are for today. My next guest is returning to the podcast to discuss his 180 on the subject. He holds a PhD from the University of Texas and a master in theology from Dallas Theological Seminary. He's a lead pastor for preaching and vision at Bridgeway Church in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, founder of Enjoying God Ministries, and serves on the boards of Bethlehem College and Seminary. 
and Acts 29 Network. He's authored a lot of books, including Kingdom Come, The Amillennial Alternative. Speaking of which, you should go listen to the other podcast we did about the millennium. It was very interesting. You should definitely listen to that when you're done here. And uh, Practicing the Power, Welcoming the Gifts of the Holy Spirit in Your Life. Sam Storms, thank you for coming back on the podcast to uh, tackle another hot, bu- hot button issue. Georgie, it's good to be back with you. Allow me, if I may, to make one slight correction. Yeah. Um, I appreciate your uh, listing uh, the many activities that I'm engaged <laughs> in. I have actually rotated off the board of Bethlehem mm-hmm. College and Seminary. Mm-hmm. I served on it for about six years. Great school in Minneapolis. And I do not serve on the board of Acts 29 any longer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do. I am on the uh, Council of the Gospel Coalition, however, and on the executive committee of the Evangelical Theological Society. So I kind of have to shift around a little bit how much time I can devote to these various ministries and organizations. So I just wanted to be clear on that in case anybody listening writes yeah. back to you and yep. says, Georgie, you, you misrepresented <laughs> Sam. <laughs> I appreciate you taking time to do that. Yeah, of course. Um, a note to new listeners to the podcast. This podcast is, like I said in the introduction, about exploring how people change their minds on subjects ranging from the political to the cultural to the spiritual. So if that sounds like your speed, please hit subscribe, um, like the, this, this episode if you're listening on SoundCloud, and keep on listening. And um, also, if you are conservative or Con curious, I think is the term. You also might want to check out uh, my other political commentary podcast that is forthcoming next week or within the next few days, which is um, The Breakdown with Georgie Borman. And uh, with that covered, let's go ahead and get into this 180. Okay, so Sam, you you said at the, uh, w- w- once we wrapped up our last podcast, you said that you used to be a cessationist. And and then you changed your mind. So um, why were you a cessationist in the first place? Like, um, you know, what what were what was your justification? What were your arguments? I mean, did you grow up with that doctrine? Yes, I did. Um, that, in fact, is I think one of the reasons why many people would be cessationists. That's the tradition in which they were raised. I was raised in a very wonderful Christian home. My parents, both believers. Uh, and uh, we were Southern Baptists, and Southern Baptists, at least back when I was younger, um, were not uh, open to charismatic gifts. They were quite critical of the charismatic movement as a whole. So that was the tradition in which I was raised. Um, I, I never heard much about it uh, up until the time that I entered uh, my university years. And uh, then I went to Dallas Theological Seminary. And Dallas Seminary, a great school that I really love, uh, appreciate it. I know several of the faculty there. Dallas is um, cessationist in their theology. Mm. Uh, in fact, when I was there, you couldn't, you wouldn't be admitted to the school unless you were a cessationist, and uh, you probably would not be given your diploma to graduate if you were not a cessationist. So they they held a pretty strict line. I think those. Those guidelines or requirements have been uh, lightened. I think now charismatics can both get in and flourish there and be gra- and graduate as well. But I was uh, <clears throat> became somewhat entrenched in my cessationism, and in fact, I was uh, really very negative and critical and judgmental toward charismatics. 
I think another reason why I was a, a cessationist was fear. Um, I, I was afraid of a lot of things, afraid of being associated with people that I thought were a little flaky, um, fear of losing control, fear of the unknown, fear of the strange. Um, there was also the fact that, quite honestly, I had not seen the gifts of the Spirit used in a very edifying and Christ-exalting way. What I had seen of them is what a lot of us you know, could say we saw on television or now on the Internet were some people doing it badly, and that was offensive. And then there was also this, this offense that I harbored in my heart against what I would call the charismatic subculture. You know, there's, a, there's just kind of a way of carrying yourself that I found to be a little bit too flamboyant, lacking sophistication. I didn't think that charismatics were very intellectual. I didn't think they were really rooted in the word, all which I have come to find out was profoundly wrong. And then also, of course, there were certain texts of Scripture that cessationists typically appeal to, Mm-hmm. that I appealed to as well, only later to discover when I actually opened my Bible and started examining these texts closely, uh, found out that they didn't teach cessationism at all. So those are kind of the convergence of factors that kind of reinforced this belief in me up until about 1988, and that's when everything changed. Oh, Sam, here you go again, <laughs> opening your Bible. You just got to go and do that. You know what? <laughs> it's... um. I, I do have to, I always do this, and he doesn't mind. I, I blame a lot of this on my dear friend, Jack Deer. Jack was, um, we were classmates at Dallas. He was a year or two ahead of me, and then he went on faculty. And when Jack made this theological shift, I encountered him on the campus uh, at Dallas in uh, 19, late 87, early 88. And we began talking about this, and I began to make these uh, pushback and make these arguments for cessationism. And he asked that same question. It just kind of put me on my heels. He said, where's that in the Bible? And to my everlasting embarrassment and shame, I thought, well, that's a good question. I don't think I have a good answer for you. And it drove me back into the scriptures to really look closely at these texts and these arguments. And again, let me be you know very forthright here. I embraced a lot of the theological arguments for cessationism because the men under whom I studied and greatly admired and respected uh, taught them. And again, I still have the greatest admiration and respect for those men, most of whom are now in heaven. Um, But um, I say not because some of them are in hell. I don't want that to sound wrong. (laughs) It's because some of them are still alive. We've got to be real clear about that. Um, Yeah, somebody's going to write back, okay, Sam, which Dallas profs are in heaven? Uh, yeah, well, the living ones, thats those are the ones. Um, and I, I really learned an important lesson that I hope all of us learn, and that is, yes, respect our superiors, the, our teachers, those whom we admire and respect uh, uh, and hold in high regard, but never accept anybody's word simply because they're the ones that speak it. Open the Bible and examine it for yourself to see if these things be so. And that was a massive turnaround for me. So what kind of texts are we talking about here? I know there's one in uh, 1 Corinthians 13 that cessationists generally appeal to. Um, of course, 1 Corinthians 13 is well known as the 
the love passage, the love chapter. Um, right. Right. It says, um, love never ends as for prophecies. They will pass away as for tongues. They will cease as for knowledge. It will pass away for we know in part and prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the, the partial will pass away. So I've seen people uh, appeal to this, like um, Lutherans, for instance, appeal to this and say, well, obviously that's all we we really need to know. Like this is this is a proof text. It, right. They said they were going to go away and they've gone away. So well, you know, the bottom it, here's the ironic thing about that text. Um, whereas it used to be the go-to text for cessationists, even most cessationists now acknowledge that it's actually the strongest proof text for continuationism. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason uh, is very simple. Uh, for many, many years, authors would simply repeat the same argument that the perfect, he talks about when the perfect comes, mm-hmm. was the final canon of scripture, you know, the collection of the inspired books of the of the Bible. And once that was in place, the need for these spiritual gifts would have ended. But virtually all cessationists, uh, and now there, there are a few holdouts, but the vast majority of them now acknowledge that the perfect, when you look at it in its full context, is a reference to the perfect state of affairs that's brought about at the second coming of Christ, namely right. the new heavens and the new earth. And so, for example, uh, my very good friend, Tom Schreiner, who is a cessationist, uh, acknowledges in his book on spiritual gifts, in which he argues for cessationism, that this is the one text that if any might con- convince him of the truth that the gifts continue, this would be it. So this text actually has uh, undergone, uh, you know, a lot of abuse. I think now most recognizing it uh, as saying that, in fact, these gifts, and it just mentions three here because he doesn't want to cite all of them, Mm -hmm. uh, tongues, prophecy, and knowledge, word of knowledge, I believe he means, uh, will continue until the perfect comes. And it's only then that they will be done away. So I would actually appeal to 1 Corinthians 13 Mm -hmm. in, in defense of continuationism. Right. When, and when I went to examine it after I first heard that from a cessationist, because uh, it had been a while since I visited that, I was in Bible quizzing, so I had memorized it at some point as a teenager. But And, and then after I like I knew a little more, I was like, wait a minute, the perfect, when the perfect comes. And then I, uh, I remembered something somebody had said, one pastor, maybe it was Kim Riddlebarger, it was like, well, there's this age and then there's the age to come. And that's really the way that we should divide things in the Bible in terms of when things happen. And then the age to come is, as you said, like when Jesus comes back and everything is perfected in a new heaven and a new earth. And I was like, wait a second, wait, when the perfect comes, wait, but that makes perfect sense within that paradigm. It's like this age and the age to come. And so I tried engaging with this person and he like just didn't I don't know. It didn't work. And, and he's a really smart guy. I, I didn't understand why it didn't work. Yeah, that's true. Well, there were other texts. Uh, another one that um, that cessationists will often appeal to is in Hebrews chapter 2, uh, verses 3 and 4, um, where he says the gospel was first declared by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witnesses by sign and one, signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Um, And actually, I don't think that text can in any way be used to prove the cessation of the gifts for several reasons. 
Um, the argument basically is, well, the reason why God gave these spiritual gifts and signs and wonders was to bear witness to the truth of the message of the gospel. And I'm happy to admit that. I said, absolutely, of course they did. But why can't they continue to do that? Where in the Bible does it ever say that spiritual gifts and miraculous signs and wonders cannot now testify to the authenticity of the message? Um, If it did it then, why can't it do it now? Uh, it's also interesting that in uh, they tend to want to limit these uh, supernatural phenomena to the ministry of the apostles. Well, of course, interestingly enough, the word apostles doesn't even appear in that passage. Now, they were probably included in it, but there's no reason why it should be limited or restricted. And there were numerous others beyond the 12 who heard Jesus preach and watched him perform miracles. Um, also, it's very interesting. The text doesn't say to what or to whom God bore witness by signs and wonders. Now, it's probably the great salvation that he mentions in verse 3, but uh, there's nothing in that that means that God can't do it now. Um, also, it's interesting that uh, it sounds as if in the way that this is translated, let me just r- read this phrase again, um, it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness. And that's that's past tense, right? He did it then, but he doesn't do it now. Well, the problem is in the Greek, it's a present tense. We could more accurately render it while God is also bearing witness, even in their day and, of course, in ours as well. So um, I, I just look at this text and I say, is this really saying what my cessationist friend's contend that it is sane, and it just does not appear to me that it can hold up against a close examination. Um, There's one other passage, by the way, that is oftentimes used. It's Ephesians 2.20. Ephesians 2.20, where Paul uh, is referring to the foundation that was laid, and he says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And I, again, I think they make far too much of this. Yes, of course, the early church, the, the theological foundations of the church universal was built upon the foundation that was laid by the apostles and prophets. But that's not all that the apostles and prophets did. In other words, once they ceased or no longer needed to lay the foundation because it was laid once and for all, they continued to minister in countless other ways. And furthermore, There's no reason to think that the reference to prophets here is inclusive of all prophets. Think about it for just a moment. We have Philip's four daughters are called prophetesses. Hmm. So I would would ask cessationists, are you saying that Philip's four daughters, not one word from whom is ever recorded in Scripture, laid the foundation for the universal church? What about Acts 2 and Pentecost, where young and old, male and females, bond servants and free, all will prophesy during the present age. What do you do about uh, 1 Corinthians 14, uh, where Paul is encouraging all believers, not just in Corinth, but in every church, to earnestly desire to prophesy? Are all those people to be conceived as laying the foundation for the uh, universal body of Christ? So prophetic ministry is far broader and more diverse than just what is described in Ephesians 2.20. So Ephesians 2.20, 1 Corinthians 13, Hebrews 2, 
those are kind of the go-to texts, none of which, in my opinion, can stand up to scrutiny to defend cessationism. So this is, so you had all of these sort of preconceived, or not preconceived, but you had these notions of what charismatics were like based off of what you've seen, um, the the flakiness, maybe some, seeing that some of them lacked some theological depth. Um, so you're saying that what really changed your mind, though, wasn't necessarily getting to know those people, but it was going straight to the text, like your friend suggested. Yes. When he asked, where, where is that in the Bible? Yeah. Um, first of all, let's be clear. There are flaky and intellectually shallow people in the cessationist camp too. Right. <laughs> I mean, that, this is not, this is not right. unique to charismatics and Pentecostals, the yeah. body of Christ. And again, let's be, let's be clear about one thing, Georgie. I want people to hear me well. We're talking about our brothers and sisters in Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, so whatever, whatever we say to disagree with one view or the other, let's remember these are blood-bought children of God. He loved them. He gave his son for them. We're going to spend eternity with them. So I, 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 I put a check on my own heart and my own mouth, and I hope other people will as well. So when I say some were flaky and maybe intellectually unsophisticated, um, I've seen just as much flakiness and bizarre behavior in, you know, Bible-believing fundamentalist cessationists. So uh, we can all be judgmental and cynical. We can all be flaky and shallow, but that is no argument for whether or not gifts are still valid. The only relevant question is, what does the Bible say? And I think that's, that's a major hurdle for, for cessationists. When I talk with them, almost the first thing they'll throw at me is, well, but did you see this goofy guy on TV the other day? Did you watch that guy on the internet? Uh, and I say, well, beg your pardon, since when did their behavior become the criterion by which we decide what's true or false? I thought the Bible was our authority. So, yeah, very important. Now, I, I think I got off on a tangent. I can't remember your question. <laughs> no, no, no. I was, I was going to segue into this because, you know, there are some people who say some, some people who are very serious sensationists and, and this is, uh, you know, really an issue they feel strongly about based off of so many of the things that they've seen that they would say, you know, maybe you've been deceived by the enemy or something. Like I, I know Todd Friel, who I, respect greatly. And I find a lot of the things he says very edifying. He really goes after non-cessationists and sort of seems to lump them in with, um, you know, all of the the people from the Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry or whatever that's called. And the, the really far out Pentecostals who are sort of rolling on the floor and, and speaking in tongues all the time. And, um, and, and, you know, the kinds of people that believe everybody has the ability to speak in tongues. And it's sort of like one of those Sure. Um, one of those thresholds that you have to meet to be extra spiritual. Like you're not, you're not quite there unless you can speak in tongues. You know, right. like, there's so much of that going on. And, and, and it, it well, seems it, very easy to sort of lump all of that together and be like, okay, these people are either frauds or there's something demonic going sure. on. Sure. Well, in the interest of full disclosure, I speak in tongues regularly. I've had this gift for many years. I speak in tongues every single day. And I can still tie my shoelaces. I can actually write out a check and I don't drool. <laughs> so, uh, you know, now, but you're right. I, I, not everybody's supposed to speak in tongues. Nobody had, there's no spiritual gift that God intended for every Christian to have. Paul makes that very clear 
in first Corinthians 12. Mm-hmm. Um, and no, it is not a badge of spirituality or a badge of a superiority or, Oh, you speak in tongues. Oh man, I guess God really loves you. No, speaking in tongues is just one gift among about 20 or 21 others. It's not a badge of anything. It's simply a tool that God has granted to some of his children, but for his own reasons, hasn't granted to others. So yeah, it's, we, it's just our, our standard reaction is, um, we tend to, whether or not we would ever honestly admit it, we tend to judge the reality of some spiritual claim based on who it is that's making it and how they behave and whether or not they offend us and whether we think they're bringing reproach on the name of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that's, that's a major hurdle to overcome. I, in fact, I, I'll be honest. Um, when people ask me, I mean, you started out asking me why I was a cessationist. Um, I, I do not believe deep down in my heart. And I know my cessationist friends are going to rise up and scream in protest deep down in my heart. I don't believe that the fundamental reason why they're cessationists is because they see it in the Bible. I think it's because they haven't seen it in good church context where it's done in a biblical way for the good of people and the glory of Christ. They are offended. They're fearful. Um, and I think that has created such a prejudice in hearts that it really discolors the way they actually read scripture. So I know again, that even saying that is, is going to be interpreted as offensive by many, but I'm just, I'm just talking out of, uh, mm-hmm. my 69 and a half years of life on this <laughs> earth and, and 60 of those as a Christian, my experience tells me and first my own personal experience as well, that that really is the case. Okay, so going back to speaking in tongues, I have a a burning question because I read, I think maybe it was last year, I read a little bit of a paper um, before my kids distracted me um, that argued that the, the tongues in, in the Bible, that there's like two separate things going on and that they often get conflated. There was the tongues that are... Um, Tongues like speaking or being heard in other languages that right. you wouldn't know except by the spirit, and then there's the like the prayer tongue, like the right the prayer language, and sometimes people conflate those two. Are they both a thing today, or one or oh, the other? And yeah, why? great question, great question. I actually, I don't know if you're aware of this. I actually wrote an entire book on the gift of tongues. It's about a 250 page book. It's called the language of heaven. And I, I examined what I think is every conceivable question people have ever asked about that gift, every objection. And I've looked at every text in the new Testament on it and you articulated it. Well, I believe with the majority of of people, even most cessationists that the tongues on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter two were legitimate human languages like Parthian and Egyptian and well, whatever all the other languages were represented there. And that uh, that's what God empowered those disciples to speak, even though they'd never been trained in those languages. And these people at Pentecost were amazed. They said, we're hearing them speak of the wondrous works of God in our own dialects. Now, the question is, does that mean that every subsequent experience of tongues is going to be precisely the same? And the answer to that is profoundly no. I go into great detail in the book of Acts and in 1 Corinthians showing that, in fact, 
that was probably um, unusual, what happened in Acts 2, that subsequent expressions or experiences of speaking in tongues is what, as you described it, a prayer language. A un- and now, again, it's language, but it's not an earthly language that you can go study in graduate school. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a language that is crafted by the Holy Spirit, imparted uniquely to an individual to enhance their prayer life, to enable them, as 1 Corinthians 14 says, to pray to God, to give thanks, uh, to worship. Paul talks about singing in the Spirit. I think he's talking about singing in tongues. So I do think that there are two... In fact, it's interesting. Let me just give you one verse to ponder. Um, In 1 Corinthians 12, the first mention that Paul makes of tongues, he says various kinds of tongues. And then, in fact, he uh, repeats that later down in chapter 12, verse 28, various kinds of tongues. In other words, there are a variety of species of tongues, if I can use that language. And um, and I think one of them is actual human languages. The other is uniquely crafted speech patterns that he gives uh, to various Christians. Now, one more thing. I don't believe that the Acts 2 type of tongues is very common today. I think that was a unique event on the day of Pentecost for its own obvious purposes. I've heard of some credible examples where people have been enabled to speak an actual human language they never before studied uh, on the mission field in evangelistic context. I think there have been some verifiable instances, but they are quite rare. I think the majority of tongue speech today is what we would call prayer language that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 14. And so how does this gift, I know we're getting into the weeds a little bit here, but I feel like our listeners are probably probably asking these questions and want to know, how does this gift intersect with the gift of prophecy? For instance, sometimes in charismatic churches, you know, somebody will will speak in a, a prayer language and then Right, and then somebody might come up and prophesy based off of what that is, or the sure. same person will also offer a prophecy after saying that. So how does that how does all of that work? And are there clear guidelines in the New Testament about how it's supposed to work? Because I think, like you said before, much of the criticism of charismatics and Pentecostals, I think, comes not from not from uh the the doctrine itself, but how that is administered in the church and whether or not they're following like the proper ecclesiastical doctrines. Well, yeah, I I do. You ask, are there guidelines? Absolutely. First Corinthians 14, which I go into great detail in explaining in my book, gives very clear guidelines. Paul uh, prohibits some things. He encourages others. Obviously, one of the things he prohibits is speaking in uninterpreted tongues in the corporate assembly. When you're gathered, for example, on a Sunday morning, the purpose of which is to teach, instruct, encourage others, the only way that's going to happen is if they can understand what you're saying. So mm-hmm. Paul says, when if you use tongues in the corporate assembly, you have to ensure that there's interpretation so others can understand and they can profit from it. In the absence of an interpreter, keep silent in the church, he says. Um, now as far as tongues and prophecy, um, I do not think that they overlap. I think they are two distinct gifts. So for example, um, on occasion, very rarely, but on occasion, we have had somebody speak in tongues in our corporate assembly and we have an interpretation. 
Some people say that when that interpretation is given, it becomes prophecy. I don't believe that. I believe it's still a tongues, an utterance in tongues that is then interpreted so others can be uh, built up and encouraged and edified. Uh, Prophecy is when the Spirit of God brings to mind uh, through revelation, a revelatory disclosure, some truth, some principle, um, some word of encouragement that a person then speaks forth in their own words. Uh, so prophecy is always done, if I can say this, in the vernacular. In other words, in the language that you and I speak. Where this mm-hmm. is the ver- what we're, you and I are doing right now is the, in the vernacular of English. Um, so I might have a prophetic word for you. God might give me some insight into your life or some decision you're about to make, and I might have some some real wise counsel to give you in that regard. That would be a prophetic word. But if I began speaking in tongues, which I very easily could but will not, um, that is vertical in its orientation. That's directed to God. I'm not speaking to you. I'm speaking to God. I'm communicating prayer, gratitude, and praise to Him. So, yes, the two gifts are different. I don't believe they necessarily overlap. Now, can they have the same effect? In other words, can they bear the same kind of fruit in people's lives so that people uh, who are recipients of a prophetic word or somebody who listens to a tongue being interpreted, can they all be edified, strengthened, encouraged, rebuked, warned? Absolutely. But just because the effects of the two gifts are the same doesn't mean that the two gifts themselves are. That's helpful. So going back to the the arguments for cessationism, what what would you say to the argument that Christian writers for the last, you know, 1500 years at least weren't weren't really documenting the use of these gifts, weren't really documenting sure. miracles and such since the early church? And isn't that really strong evidence that these gifts has, have ceased, right? Because God gave us eyes. He, he gave us these senses to perceive the objective world. And shouldn't we take into account the evidence or lack thereof that we've seen into this and not just sure. focus yeah. on the Bible? I mean, I'm, I'm sort of presenting the... Yeah. In fact, I'm glad you circled back around to this because that's one other argument of the cessationists that I didn't mention that they often appeal to. They say, well, where are these gifts in church history? And I would say everywhere. (laughs) In fact, I have a lengthy chapter in my book on tongues. And by the way, again, just so I hope you don't mind me doing this. I have a very large book coming out in about three or four months from Zondervan. comes out September 1st called Understanding Spiritual Gifts, A Comprehensive Guide. It's 375 pages long, and it goes into every issue of these that you and I have been discussing and a whole bunch of others. And I look at all the gifts of the Spirit, not just the more miraculous ones. And I have a lengthy chapter there where I document and give direct uh, primary source references to the gifts of tongues and prophecy and healing and word of knowledge and and such all through the early church up until about the year 600, at which time, as you know, the Roman Catholic Church and the domination of the priestly clergy took over such that uh, most average Christians didn't even have access to the Bible in their language. And yet, even through the medieval period, I give dozens of examples 
of documented evidence of these gifts being operative. Um, granted, they diminished somewhat during the time of the Reformation because the Roman Catholic Church would often appeal to these miraculous gifts as proof that they were the true church of God. And therefore, mm-hmm. uh, the Reformers were very uh, uh, opposed to that kind of an appeal, uh, plus the fact that there were some extreme radicals during the time of the Reformation who were, and this is this is the kind of uh, quote-unquote charismatic that you do want to oppose, uh, in which they basically just cast aside the Bible altogether because they just wanted to hear the direct voice of God through the Spirit. All of these things prejudiced the Protestant reformers against the reality of the gifts. But even in the post-Reformation period up to the present day, there are a multitude of examples of where these gifts were continuing and were operative. Um, and I just marvel when I hear people say, uh, even people that you think maybe would have taken the time to actually read the, the early church fathers, and they say, well, there's no evidence these gifts persisted beyond the first century. And I'm saying, what are you reading that I'm not reading? I'm, I'm reading Tertullian, and I'm reading Cyprian and Augustine and um, all of these individuals, Irenaeus and uh, Justin Martyr, and I, and they're all talking about these miraculous gifts in operation in their own day in their own churches. Hmm. So where does this idea come from that that church fathers, church writers were uh, silent on this? I think what happens is that it's kind of a snowball effect. One or two um, highly respected scholars will simply say that these gifts aren't in the writings of the apostolic uh, fathers or the patristic age, and then everybody else just picks it up and parrots it, and they just repeat it. Mm -hmm. But when you actually take the time to read uh, the fathers, I mean, I'm thinking, for example, of um, the Cappadocians. Uh, These were three... um, incredible theologians who are largely responsible um, throughout the uh, uh, the 4th and 5th centuries A.D. for the development of the doctrine of the Trinity. I mean, everybody loves the Cappadocians. Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory of Nazianzus, um, Basil of Caesarea. And yet, when you read them, they talk about how people are being miraculously healed. They talk about prophetic words. Um, it, it, you just actually have to sit down and take the time to read these with, with an objective mind and let them speak uh, rather than imposing on them what you think they should say or what somebody told you they said. So, um, you know, again, mm-hmm. I, 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 can only, I can only take responsibility for what I see in them. I, I don't want to impugn the motivation of my cessationist brothers and sisters. I would just challenge people, don't believe these arguments just because somebody you really like said it. Take the time to study the original sources. So a a question I had going back to sort of the perceptions that are strongly at at work and which side you take, what can charismatics do to sort of help their case and persuade cessationists? Because to be honest, it, it does seem like sometimes they sort of don't really spend any time arguing from scripture and they spend a lot of time asserting that people who disagree with them somehow lack faith or don't have a saving faith or are even 
or they're like in quenching. extreme cases, in extreme cases like blaspheming the Holy Spirit, yeah. or you know. So what? Sure. What, how do we fix this problem? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that, Georgie. I, I I have felt specifically, if I can use this language, called by God to devote much of my pastoral and scholarly efforts to helping not only cessationists see the error of the way they have interpreted Scripture, and I believe misinterpreted it, but also helping charismatics to become more deeply rooted in God's Word, to say, all right, look, let's be honest, people. Some of you are intellectually unsophisticated. Some of you are flaky. Some of you do put more emphasis on your experience than you do the authority of God's inspired, inerrant Word. So let's take seriously the challenge and what I do is I say, let's, we don't have anything to be afraid of in God's word. It's in God's word that we find the basis for our belief in all the spiritual gifts. So let's be diligent to dig deeply. Let's study. Let's memorize. Let's, let's learn the biblical languages. Let's expound and explain what the Bible is saying. Now, the reason why some, not, not all, certainly not even many, but some charismatics resist that is because they're terrified of quenching the Spirit. And they think, Sam, if I do that, what's going to keep me from becoming some sort of uh, intellectualized Pharisee where the only thing that matters is thinking right, and I become cynical and judgmental of people who disagree with me, and won't the Spirit be quenched if I take that approach? And my response is, well, that could happen, but if it does, it's your fault. It's not the Bible's fault. It's not God's fault. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to, Im- and I call them my charismatic brothers and sisters, we need to immerse ourselves in Scripture. Um, that's where we find um, all the theological truth that we need, all the ethical principles of right and wrong that God designs us to live by. And I, so I, I'm constantly calling my charismatic Pentecostal brothers and sisters to be more rigorous and diligent in their study of God's Word, their teaching and preaching of God's Word. At the same time, um, I speak to my cessationist brothers and sisters, who oftentimes uh, they go to the other end of the spectrum. And the reason why they are so um, what we might call intellectually rigid and closed-minded is because um, they're afraid that um, that they're going to be led down the path into fanaticism and emotionalism, and uh, they're going to lose their their moorings and uh, to the scriptures. They want to be tethered to the word, which is a good thing, but they're afraid of just being given over to subjective experiences that's going to lead them astray and perhaps even open them to demonic influence. So both sides have these fears that govern uh, why they take the approach that they do. And I just, I'm, I'm trying to reach out to both sides and say, look, <laughs> Let's be biblical. Let's listen to the Word of God, and let's do what it tells us to do and believe what it says uh, without these fears governing our behavior. As far as the, the fanaticism that, that, that people f- fear and things like that, I, I imagine a lot of times when cessationists speak up about that, they're probably, in their mind, they're probably thinking about Bethel and... Um, you know, in, in Redding, California, and the the videos that they've seen of people, like, just being extremely weird and bizarre. Um, how, how do we address 
that kind of situation there. And I know this is a very controversial, like very, very touchy subject because, you know, there's probably a lot of true believers who are misguided in, in that church. And I know, obviously, I'm going into my own opinions a little bit here, but there's some weird stuff going on there that does not seem at all like it is of the spirit. So how do we address that? Because that seems like a huge barrier for cessationists sure, to, it is. to jump over because that imagery is so powerful and it's yeah. so concerning. So we can add to the list of reasons I earlier gave wh- why people are cessationists. And the other one is Bethel. <laughs> now, <laughs> right. <laughs> I want to I be real careful here and very clear. First of all, I've never met Bill Johnson. Uh, so I, I, I cannot, the things I've heard of him in terms of his personal life, his integrity, his love for God's word and God's people is that he's a wonderful man of God. Now, I don't know him personally, but I have some very good friends who do know him and they, they testify he is the real deal. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that I would agree with everything he teaches. But again, I just want to remind people, uh, these are our brothers and sisters in Jesus and there are just as many um, false believers among Bible-oriented cessationist churches as there are in charismatic continuationist churches. Um, now, having said that, um, and again, I might be misunderstood when I first say this, so let me make sure I can explain it. Once again, weirdness is not a criterion for deciding what is true or false. I mean, let's. you want to talk about weirdness? How about... Um, a dead man being raised when the bones of Elijah fall on him in the Old Testament. What about weirdness about some of the behavior of Ezekiel and Jeremiah? We talk about weirdness. What about Jesus making mud balls with spit and putting them on the eyes of a blind man and he sees? What about uh, P- Peter's shadow passing over people and they get instantly healed? There are a lot of weird things in God's word, but we don't judge the truthfulness of them by that. Um, now, having said that, I don't advocate weirdness for weirdness sake. I, I mean, that, that doesn't help anybody. And it is off-putting, as you've just described, and, and justifiably so. But here's another thing we have to remember. When you look at revivals throughout church history, and I'm thinking particularly of the First and Second Great Awakenings, particularly the First Great Awakening with Jonathan Edwards, pretty much everything you see happening uh, at Bethel or in other places, Jonathan Edwards, who was a uh, biblical Puritan five-point Calvinist and a cessationist, by the way, he saw happening in his own church. And mm-hmm. when the Spirit of God is poured out in great power, there are going to be certain weird things that happen simply because we are frail people who are desperate to experience the reality of God. And sometimes we allow ourselves to be swept up in certain practices that don't have a basis in Scripture. And then we elevate those practices to the level of orthodoxy, like, well, if you don't have this experience, you obviously aren't truly of God. And, of course, that's devastating. That's that's very destructive. Um, so let, if, I'm gonna, let me just recommend another book. Uh, it's not mine. My friend Andrew Gabriel, who is a Pentecostal scholar, lives in teaching in Canada, wrote a book called Simply Spirit-Filled. It's real easy. It's like 150 pages, 
And he talks about the very things, Georgie, that you raised, about these physical manifestations and this kind of behavior. And he's saying, what is, what is this? Why does it happen? Is it fake? Is some of it real? And if it is, how do we know the difference? It's a great help to people. That's the one book I recommend to people who, have, who really have questions about these sorts of phenomena. So all that being said, I can't endorse everything that goes on at Bethel, but I'm not in the position where I want to uh, renounce it either. I, I would, I would, you know, for, let me just give you a quick example. <laughs> and I get this from Jonathan Edwards during his meetings in 18th century, New England, in Puritan churches, people would fall down in the midst of his preaching, shrieking. They would lie in trance states for 24 hours, unmoved. And Edwards asked the question, is that, the spirit of God, or is that the flesh? And his response was, we can't know just by looking at what happens to them. We can only know by asking the question, are they different when they get up off the floor? In other words, mm-hmm. Edward said, let's look at the fruit in their lives. He said, I don't care what may or may not have caused you to fall down. I just want to know, are you a more Christ-like when you get up? So, it's not weirdness that we use as a criterion, it's fruitfulness. To what extent are lives transformed to look more like Jesus? That's the criterion we need to employ to answer the questions that you raised. This is a lot to think oh, about. Oh, isn't it? Isn't it? I'm <laughs> telling you. Because I, you know, because I've, I've heard, you know, a lot of podcasts and I've heard from people who have exited Bethel and and they have very strong opinions that, they have scripture to cite and things like that. And then also people who, you know, have come out of the the new age movement to Christ and they see a lot of very disturbing parallels um, in even places where Bethel's doctrines and practices seem to have been drawn from new age practices. And I find all that just very disturbing. Yeah. I mean, like you said, I, I don't think it means that, that the spirit isn't, working at Bethel at all. And I think that there are believers there, but man, you know, that's just, that's really yes. disconcerting. That's why, that's why we need discernment. That's why we need to keep our finger on the text of scripture. We need to keep our hearts and minds open to what God may choose to do, that it might be something new and different that we haven't anticipated that makes us feel uncomfortable. And we have to keep our finger on the text and say, all right, let me judge it by what I see in God's word. And let me and let's let's wait and test the fruit of the transformed lives of these who claim to have had these experiences. So, yes, I, you know, the, the, it seems like so oftentimes in the church we have one of two responses to these kinds of things. It's either um, disdainful Pharisaical judgmentalism on the one hand, or naive gullibility on the other, as if somehow. Either we have to swallow everything that is said and done by these people, or we have to reject it completely out of hand as demonic and fleshly. I happen to believe that there's another alternative. It's the biblical alternative that we have to evaluate in light of God's word. We have to look at the fruit. We have to talk with these people. And, you know, I, that's what Edwards did that was so great back in the 18th century. He sat down with his people. He said, now, now tell me. What happened before you had this experience? Were you reading scripture? Were you loving the Lord? Describe the experience. How are you different now that it's over with? Do you love him? Do you love his word? Do you love his people more? 
Um, so many times we just have these knee jerk reactions without, ex, you know, prayerfully discerning. Um, is there a mixture going on? Well, oftentimes, yes. Well, how do we sift and discern the good from the evil, the evil from the good? So uh, that's just my approach. And I, I try to do that as best I can. Um, I, I just don't want to fall off into either one of those ditches on the side of the road. Now, I don't want to be right. a cynical Pharisee. I don't want to be a naive fanatic. Uh, there has to be a better, more biblical way. Yeah, hopefully we're, we're all seeking to be to be right there with you. Yes. Um, it is it, it's tempting, though. It's a difficult balance. So what's your, what is your elevator pitch for, for a cessationist if you get to talking and you're going up a really tall skyscraper and... Uh, <laughs> And, uh, you know, someday when we, when two people can be in an elevator at the same time. Um, so, so what do you say to, to that person to get them thinking maybe they're not on the right side of this? Where is that in the Bible? <laughs> that, would, <laughs> right. that would be my, cause if I, you know, an elevator, even though in a skyscraper, it's going to be no more than a minute or two. I would simply say, um, have you really looked in scripture to see if there's anything, even one text that justifies the belief that God intended spiritual gifts of a miraculous nature only to be operative for the first 60 years of the church's history, just in that very small span of time between the resurrection of Jesus and um, the, uh, the pinning of the book of revelation. And I, I, I just, I just don't see it. I don't see it anywhere in the New Testament. Not a syllable suggests to me that God intended those gifts to be operative only in that short span of time. I think these are the tools that God has given us to build the church, to bring, uh, to strengthen and edify and encourage one another. And I mean, I can't imagine if I were going to have my a new home built that my carpenter uh, shows up with a hammer and a screwdriver and that's it. I say, buddy, where are your tools? How are you going to build this house? It's the same way. If we're going to if we're going to be building the kingdom, expanding the lordship of Jesus through our ministries and strengthening the church, we need all the tools that the Spirit of God has provided, and these gifts are among them. It's a great place to end. Thank you for joining me again today, Sam. This is, I think, this is a really good conversation that's going to be helpful. Can you give? The name of your forthcoming book yes. uh, again, really quick. Yes, it's called Understanding Spiritual Gifts, A Comprehensive Guide. It'll be out September 1st. And in fact, I've written a sequel to it that will be out in April of 2021. So just about wow, a year from you're now. you're ahead of the game. Well, hey, <laughs> I had to do something during this lockdown of COVID-19. Right. And I, I've been, Lord's helped me. Uh, and it's called Understanding Spiritual Warfare, A Comprehensive Guide. It's about the same length. And so... I try to address all the issues related to spiritual gifts and spiritual warfare, and I, I hope people will be encouraged and blessed by them. Yeah, I look forward to that. I will put the names of those in the episode description. Um, for the listener, you can uh, find some of Sam's writing at samstorms.org, and you can find all of his published books on Amazon. If you have thoughts, which I know you do, on this episode, because it is a hot button topic, you can leave a voicemail or text the flip phone at 323-999-1802. You can flip out on me, um, hopefully charitably and with no swearing, <laughs> please, because it's a family show. 
and, uh, you know, try to flip my position or tell me about your own 180 or flip flop. 323-999-1802. Georgie, and you, can yeah. I interrupt you? Sure. Of all the podcasts that you have done and all the responses that you've had from listeners, I think this one is going to really overwhelm you. I think, <laughs> I think you're going to get <laughs> flooded with comments, and I pray that, uh, that they will be kind and meaningful and uh, well-spoken, and that the Lord would give you uh, clarity and discernment as you respond to them. I, I don't envy you in having to take the hit for everything I've just said. <laughs> Oh, no. Well, it, you know, this is a, a favorite punching bag for, for people who spend their days uh, arguing on Discuss or Facebook or whatever. But yeah, no, it's totally worth it. Totally worth it. I so appreciate you coming on the podcast to talk about it because it's a, I think it's a really important subject that deserves more than just punching bags. That's been but, my uh, pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at 180cast, where you can hear occasional sound bites from the podcast. And don't forget to subscribe, favorite, and repost if you are on SoundCloud. And please tell your friends about it and have some constructive, charitable conversation that's focused on um, the Word of God. And give the podcast a review on iTunes if you enjoy it. Follow me at Georgie underscore Borman. I opine on a lot of topics from a Christian conservative worldview. Until next time, seek the truth, share your values, and listen with your heart and your mind. God bless. In the middle of struggle, Lord, let me see who I am and what I need, who I've got. To In the middle of the struggle, Lord, let me see who I am and what I need, who I've got. To Executive producer struggle, Kevin McCullough. Lord, Music by Reefy Craft. Who I am and what I need, who I've got. To In the middle of the struggle, Lord, let me see who I am and what I need, who I've got to be.